Hello. Hey. Happy December and happy almost holidays. We have a gift for you. Yes, we do. We have two very special people joining us this month to talk about something that has been very near and dear to our hearts this year, The Conjuring House. And so much more. We ended up getting like, I feel like we talked about The Conjuring House for a little bit. And then Chad and Carrie, who are the writers of the very first Conjuring movie, and also the very first movie I ever, like scary movie I ever watched, House of Wax, they might have as much paranormal experience as Greg and Dana Newkirk in just a very different way because they've put themselves into situations and gone and seen so many different types of things. Like they went into India and like we're in this town where exorcisms are performed. Like it's wild how much they have seen. There's so much more than just horror movie writers. They live it every day. They do. And they told us all about it. So we put Mm -hmm. together this episode. We thought this is the best month to do it wrap it all up with some horrifying tales and then start the new year getting back into the horror movie watching game. Yes. Or I don't know, trying to figure out what to do on a Christmas morning or New Year's Eve. You know what? Start watching the Conjuring movie right before like at like 11 and then like at midnight, one of the most horrifying scenes probably will happen. (laughs) Binge watch every single movie the Hayes brothers have written. Yes. And you'll be terrified. Highly recommend. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a lot of fun to record. Hello. Congratulations on your podcast. That's really freaking cool. I love all that. Thank you. Oh, thank you. We have so many questions. Great. So for years, Corinne and I have been talking about going to haunted places in person. And so we finally did it. We went to the Conjuring House in Rhode Island. And we did an overnight. We did a tour. Did you really? It's our very first time ever doing a paranormal investigation. And we got there and it was the previous owner of the house was there who checked us in. And he was like, tell us about yourselves. And we were kind of telling him and we're like, yeah, this is our first overnight. And he's like, this is your first time doing a paranormal investigation. And you came to the fucking conjuring house. (laughs) Like He was like, you're dumb. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really fun. It was really, really fun. And so now we've just kind of been, you know, we interviewed the people at the house, we went to the Rhode Island Historical Society and kind of got a lay of the land and the history of that area. And so we're just putting together all these different pieces for our show. And this feels like one of the most important ones, because think of the Conjuring franchise. I feel like you guys kind of brought it to life. Thank you. With that movie. And so we're just so curious. We want to pick your brains on your own hauntings, your experience writing the movie. It sounds like you both believe in ghosts. Oh, we've, we've had our own encounters. We've seen ghosts, yes. You can't tell me that ghosts don't exist. You can't tell me the supernatural doesn't. I don't care if you don't believe me, but when you experienced it yeah. first, freaking hand in right in front of your face and had an interaction, then you, you can't take that away. It's like Terry and I are doing a movie about a guy that was abducted by UFO and had five eyewitnesses and gone for four hours. And we have experienced orbs, you know, that, that the government is now talking about like yesterday on Capitol Hill. We yeah. yeah. The congressional hearing. I was watching it. Yeah. It's wild. So the supernatural is something that exists. If you don't believe in it, then I'm afraid for you. I really am. <laughs> You're an easy target. <laughs> was this like from an early age you've believed in the paranormal? No, no, not really. 
my first experience was in college. Terry and I were going to UCLA and we lived in a house on Beverly Glen. And I woke up one night to a very short, very large, bald man sitting in my room on a brick planter. And he kept trying to cross his legs, but his legs were too big. So he, he couldn't quite hold it. <laughs> and my dog was in the room and I'm looking at this guy and I'm going, who are you? What do you want? What do you want? I mean, I really thought it was a person. I didn't didn't look translucent, wow. looked 100% real to me. And that's all I remembered about that encounter. And I, it was enough for me to tell Carrie in the morning, like, oh, God, man, I had the weirdest dream last night. <laughs> <laughs> this short, large, bald man in our room. And then, as it turns out, the house was built by a French actress in the 50s. And two weeks after that, we were at a party and someone said, oh, do you want to meet Kareem Calvé? She's the woman who lived in your house originally back in the 50s. And she was like Marilyn Monroe days, but the French equivalent of that. Mm -hmm. I met her and we, Karen and I were just chatting with her on a stairway. And she goes, oh my gosh, have you met Henri? She said, Henry, no. Oh, he's the ghost that lives in the house. He's a very large, short, bald man. Have you met him yet? And I was like, our jaws just went kaboom. It was. <laughs> wow. And so then, I mean, Carrie, you should tell you, you're, this is a whole other podcast for you guys, but we're, we're doing another franchise called the LaLori house and it's built based on. Oh, we are familiar with that house. Yeah. We're doing a whole franchise on that house. Karen, I've stayed there five times. We've had so many supernatural encounters in that house. Well, isn't it privately owned? You guys got access. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We know the owner. We know the owner. And he's the guy who bought it from Nick Cage when when Nick had it. And then. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought Nicolas Cage owned it, but he he sold it. No, no. He's that that changed ownership years ago. It went into bankruptcy or something. And then Michael, our friend from Texas, bought it as just kind of his party house. And it's it doesn't look haunted, you guys. It's <laughs> extraordinarily beautiful. It's like rock and rolly. Two of our producers won't go back there at night. Nope. They've had. You know, one guy, oh, gee, we, he got, two of them got so scared by interactions that they're like, uh-uh, no, not going to do it. See, I hear that. And my first instinct is to be like, okay, Chad and Carrie, how do Corinne and I get to go into that house? <laughs> I know. <laughs> like, oh. But you know what? We'll find out. Let's see how this thing progresses. Michael's very protective, but we'll find yeah. out. We'll put okay. the dealers out. But Chad and I have had so many interactive paranormal poltergeist, I mean, crazy stuff around the world, honestly. We've been all around the world. And I was in that house in what they called the master bedroom, woke up in the middle of the night, and there was a man standing at the foot of the bed on the right corner, mid-70s, grayish hair. He had a green shirt, gray pants. It didn't scare me. Mm-hmm. My mind was like, okay, this house is hundreds of years old. I'm trying to figure out what time period this ghost is from. Yeah. Because there's been a lot of sightings inside of this house. And he just like looks at me sideways like this out of the corner of his eyes. I'm looking at him and then gone. And, you know, he was as real as as you guys. And in the morning, we're getting ready to head back to the airport. And Carol, who's the housekeeper, was there. Just bid us farewell. Very Southern. Awesome woman. And... uh I say, Carol, guys, I saw a ghost in the house last night. And they've had so many encounters, right. I mean, Carol, over the years. And I described him, and she starts crying. And I'm like, what's wrong? She goes, you're describing my husband, Tommy, who died in the house. Oh, my gosh. And I'd never seen Tommy before. And her granddaughter, Amanda, was there. And she says, Amanda, do you have pictures of Tommy on your phone? She goes, yeah. 
And so she pulls it up and shows me the phone and go, that's the wow. dude I saw last night. But she's never, she's never had one encounter with him there. She manages the house for Michael and she did it with Nick Cage. So she's been there for 30, 40 years. Wow. Guys, there's so many stories about that. Well, okay, but I'm hearing this from you guys. And for the amount of time you've spent in each place compared to other people, I feel like you guys are clairvoyant and you maybe just don't realize that you, you have some sort of like mediumship to you. The fact that you're seeing these full bodied apparitions, too, that yeah. it's not like you're just seeing like a wisp of something or like something out of the corner of your eye. You're like physically interacting with these. You know, Corinne, Chad and I could walk into a room and both look at each other and shake our heads going, OK, there's activity in here. Yeah. You feel it. You get chilled to the bone or, hey, there's bad juju in this room. Get out. Yeah. Let's, let's leave this room. We never invite, we never entice, right. we never antagonize. We don't, I don't need that. We don't need that in our lives. But That's how we feel. Mm-hmm. It's like a very respectful, we acknowledge totally. you exist. We are interested in your stories, yeah. but let's not like. I don't need any interruption in my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not trying to fight the spirits. No, we're both believers. And I just believe, you know, if you believe in a higher power, something larger than your life out there, you can ask for the protection. Yeah. So many things. And so what Carrie was telling you about when we were in the LaLaurie house, you know, the, the two guys, and I don't know where they are, but they got attacked. One, Doug, that Carrie was telling you about is I woke up to a full grown man just saying, open the fucking door, open the fucking door like this. I'm like, uh, like what? And it was so wow. early in the morning. And I opened up my bedroom and the hallway is about 10 feet wide. It's one of those old Southern homes. And his door is going open, shut, open, shut. Open, like, like someone's pulling on it. But from the inside, I'm just looking at him. And finally opens it up and he's standing there and he's in his underwear. He looks scared shitless. I can't even tell you how he looked. And he goes, you, are you fucking with me? Are you fucking with me? And I go, dude, I, I'm right here. I haven't done anything. Yeah. And he woke up to something pounding on his chest, like a big boom, boom on his chest. Oh. And he woke up and he just, and I told you the house is rock and rolly. It has black leather drapes so that you can sleep during the day. <laughs> you know what? You know? And so it was pitch black and he swore he saw a set of eyes in there, made his way to the door Jeez. and something wasn't allowing him to open the door. So that was what carried the second night we were there. And we've been back to the home a number of times and he never stays there and never stays at dark. He's just always like, no, no, no. Wow. I'm, I'm out of there. No, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Let me bounce back to the conjuring. I have a quick question for you guys. Did you guys go see Bathsheba's gravesite when you were out no, there? No, we didn't. No, you did not. Hey, well, we also, when we were doing the conjuring, they asked, hey, do you guys want to shoot it in the original house? And in unison, James Wan Chen and I went, no, no <laughs> don't need that. Uh-uh. No, don't need that one. It was such a crazy crazy experience because you had asked us about our fascination with horror and ghosts and all of that stuff. We've grown up in a very non-ghost type world, very, you know, uh, not really attracted to that for whatever reason. But, you know, when we did, Jenna did a movie called House of Wax in 2005, and suddenly we were scary genre writers. And we had done, you know, Disney movies and movies of the week and action movies and we both believe a good story is a good story, no matter what genre you put it in. 
And when we were offered the conjuring, the parents' story, you know, Jed and I went initially went, oh, it's just another haunted story. Yeah, we turned it down. Yeah. About a family that moves into the wrong house. And we get offered those a lot. And then we went, wait, didn't Ed and Lorraine Warren, weren't they the paranormal investigators? And then suddenly we went, ooh, yeah, we want to do this. And we want to do it from their point of view, from the professional's point of view, because what rocks their world? I mean, they literally are called into somebody's house in the act three of their life. You know, it is the climax. It's gotten really bad. How do we do that? And when you talk about paranormal, sadly, Ed Warren wasn't around. He had passed away years before we met. But Chad and I spent so much time initially on the phone with Lorraine. Yeah. And what a beautiful, incredible woman she was. was But man, we would get, Chad and I experienced interference the first time on the phone talking to Lorraine. It was like whispers and voices and you're like, and we're going, well, this is a terrible connection. She goes, this is not connection, boys. This is interference. I'm going to pray this off right now. Literally just start praying. I say in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Wow. She would do some sort of a scripture, never the same. And the voices would just fade away. And we're like, those things wow. can't come through the line into my house, can they? Yeah, right. But she, importantly, she said, don't forget what we're talking about. They don't want that in the movie. So it was oh. like just certain, certainly I remember the first time we talked, but it was a lot of it was when we started really working on the Bathsheba character and what she did and her backstory and, you know, where it all began was just such a horrific horrific true story of a child sacrifice in that farmhouse. Crazy story because she also told us after she had killed her child, it was the morning that there was harvest and there was two other farm families that had come to that house to help with the harvest. And all of this was unfolding and the husband and supposedly Bathsheba went into, we put her in a tree, but it was in a barn and was going to hang herself, sacrifice herself in the name of Satan. And she said, she cursed all these people. Any one of you, I'm, cur- I'm cursing if you ever try to you know, do something on my land or whatever. And it was, they originally had 500 acres. And if you pull out a map and you go from that time period to present day, out of those two families and their lineage, there's been uh, so many deaths on the property drownings. There was a bus accident and only kids that died were those two families. And I mean, just crazy, crazy, like weird hunting accidents and people just found dead. And so it's almost like, um, I think we put part of that in the movie with Lorraine when she's kind of summating it to, to Ed. But I mean, what that family endured, those five girls, the kind of a fun set story is the girls and their dad came for an EPK and we are in Wilmington at the house and the girls arrived. Chad and I are standing on the side of the house. But not, but not the real house, the house that we were using. For. The set. No, in Wilmington, North yeah. Carolina, where we had the exterior of the house and we had Bathsheba up in the tree and it's the Ed and Lorraine where they're turning and they look up and they see Bathsheba in the tree, that scene. And so <laughs> Chad and I are on the side of the house. And the trees, you know, in the backyard and here comes the van and the, and the five daughters all get out and they're all happy and happy to be there. And their dad's there and they come around and they all see the witch at the same time. And uh, forgive me, it's been a long time. The youngest daughter, she drops, 
drops to her knees and freaks (gasps) out, just freaks out. She wouldn't go in the backyard. She just wouldn't. And Joe Bashar, who is our music guy, was also the witch. He plays the villain in all James Mm -hmm. Bond movies, Insidious, all of those. He's always that little demon thing. We're like, Joe, just wave, wave. And he's up in the tree. <laughs> they have not real. They were that traumatized, you know, or she yeah. was at least. And we didn't expect to see that at all. But all that time later, too. You know, it's so interesting, too, is um, Lorraine, I mean, was truly, truly so gifted. But she realized that she had a gift when she found out other people don't see everybody's auras. That's the first thing she saw as a child. And she Mm -hmm. would see auras and she was going to an all girl Catholic school and she confronted the mother superior of the school. And she said, I don't understand. Everyone's auras are so nice and light and yours is black. And she got her hand slapped with a ruler because of that. and was told to never talk about it again, never speak about it. And so she suddenly realized that other people don't see other people's auras. Right. So cut to, we're on the set of The Conjuring. And I can't forget the gentleman's name. Uh, nice guy came up and said, I understand Lorraine can read auras. Can you ask her what an aura in the color of a red top hat? If the aura looks like a bright red top hat, can you ask her what it means? I mean, no, you should go ask her. He goes, I don't feel comfortable at all. And you guys don't have to. It's all right. So we're having lunch with Lorraine that very day. And we said to Lorraine, we go, this guy approached us. He wants to know what it means to have an aura that it looks like a red top hat. And she literally stops. She looks over all the craft service tables because we're all having lunch inside, you know, the studio. She looks and she goes, was it him over there? And sure enough, it's the exact guy <laughs> that asked us. And she just, the tiny little woman, she just got up. We start walk over. She puts her arm around his shoulder. They both leave the building and come back in and Lorraine goes, every, everything's okay. We go, what does that mean? And she goes, Oh, it's, it's horrible anger. It's just horrible, horrible, almost uncontrollable anger. And you have to process it immediately or something bad happens. Oh, wow. The grip had gone to a carnival that took photographs of Oritz with his daughter. And hers was beautiful, and his scared the daughter. Oh, my gosh. And he didn't, it scared him. He was like, what is that? He was going through a horrible divorce at the time. He was losing all his money. It was like he was so mad about the situation and his wife. But Lorraine took him through some sort of process because the dude later cried in front of Karen. He just felt so much better. And some she took it away, he said, or whatever it is that she did. But it was a beautiful moment. That is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah's brother... His name is Dylan, and Dylan worked on The Conjuring as well. And Dylan just worked for the John Leonetti, his cinematographer, is an old friend of Carrie and I and mine. And I called him up. I said, hey, we're going to shoot. I want to get my son some experience. He just got out of film school. He wants to direct. And John's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm not going to babysit him. Just no. (laughs) And I go, wait till you meet him. He will not need a babysitter. And so they put him on and. We were in the the room that has all the, like the Annabelle doll and all those trinkets and all that stuff that they- The artifacts room, Chad. The artifacts room. And so the minute you say rap, you guys have been on sets, all the lights go down because they don't want to pay it anymore. You know, it's very expensive. Yeah. So, right. rap. so then everyone brings out their flashlights and you do it by your own light. And so they had sent Dylan into the artifacts room to roll up some electric cable and he's in there and he's literally got a flashlight. I wish he was telling you the story. He got a flashlight in his mouth <laughs> and he hears this noise 
and my son doesn't scary. He's grown up in scary movies and all this stuff. Yeah. He turns around and there's a little top, what are you, the spinners, a spin top that just is spinning entirely on its own. And then it comes off the shelf right at his feet. And he goes, he goes, I've never screamed so loud in my life. He, went, <laughs> he dropped everything. He went running out. And his boss, Scotty, Scotty goes, you're a grown man. Get your ass back in there. He's, no, 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 <laughs> no, no, I'm, you can fire me right now. I am never going into that spot again. But that was, wow. uh, yeah, that was kind of the, that got the big buzzword. Cause everyone was like, Ooh, maybe some stuff was on it. Cause when Lorraine first came to the set, she asked James Wan, the director, if she could go around and really kind of get in tune because most of the inside of the interior of the home had been from garage sales, flea markets, all that kind of stuff. And she asked for a few things to be removed that weren't beneficial to the set. They had bad mojo, bad energy. Yeah. Where were they taken to? <laughs> Goodwill. <laughs> They're in our house now. <laughs> uh, check your mailbox in three or four days. Yeah. <laughs> I know I made the mistake recently of saying like, ooh, like I really want people to send us weird things. And now people are sending us haunted objects. And oh. so. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sabrina. I know, uh-uh. I know, I know. We have so many like little anecdotal things because we are the scary guys. We were at a meeting at, at a production company and, and this assistant like was very discreet. But he said to Carrie and I as he was checking his hand, he goes, if you have any time after this meeting, can I steal two minutes of your time? But please don't tell anyone. I was like, yeah, of course. And so because I'm not pitching you a story, I just have to get your advice. Right. And so we went, sure, of course. of course, he looked so sincere what he was saying. And he literally so we're on our way out and I say, hey, can you show me where the bathroom is just to get him out of the office? You know, and so we're, mm-hmm. and we walk out into a hallway and he had just moved into an apartment. He's there by himself, mattress on the bed, only a dresser, some clothes in a pile and stuff like that. And he woke up in the middle of the night to, and his dresser had moved across his room to the center of his room. And he goes, you guys, I'm not kidding you. This is the first night and this is an old, old apartment building here in LA. So he goes, so I, I put it back. I pushed it back and I went to bed and I tried to go to sleep. I finally went to sleep and it went over again. So then he was like, oh, my God. And he had a Bible, his mom's Bible or something. So he took the Bible and he put it on top of the dresser. And sure enough, goes one more time. And he just was like, do I leave? Do I stay? It's not hurting me. I'm not. You didn't know what to do. But when he looked past the dresser, his socks had been all put in a line like someone was walking toward the door. I know this. Wait, I know this story. Do you really? And the Bible was at the door of his apartment. How do you know the story? What's his name? Um, Does he work at Warner Brothers? Maybe now. This is, Carrie, this is when uh, Noreen, it was her assistant, remember it? uh, Oh, yeah, that was probably, this had to be at least 15 years ago. Probably, this is a long time ago. I've never forgotten it, because, I mean, how horrifying. I would never stay I guess to go back when you were pitched the movie concept, was that the first time you'd ever heard of The Conjuring House? 
Or were you familiar at all with the area ahead of time? No, no, we had never heard of it. It wasn't called the Condrian House. It was it was just a farmhouse in Ro- where you guys went, yeah. the Roadhouse. Yeah, they moved there from the city to get the girls out into the country, and that's where it you know literally took place. So no, we were the only thing we were familiar with was family moved into a haunted house, and then some scary things that had happened to them. Because you know when you're designing these films, you can't necessarily stick to the timeline. You know, the parents lived in that house Mm -hmm. for over nine years when all this happened, but you know, you have two hours to tell the story basically. And then you always have to answer the question, well, why don't you just move out? And in their situation, I think it was financial. They just, they couldn't afford it with so many people in their family. It's interesting because in spending time at the house and we started reading Andrea Perrin's books Mm-hmm. A lot of the focus has been taken away from Bathsheba and a lot of it is, you know, the land and the King Philip's war and mm-hmm. how many deaths are on that land. And then aliens has been like a big belief for at least Andrea and the people who own the house now. I'm curious your perspective, like aliens versus Bathsheba. Well, I was unfamiliar with alien part of it. I didn't know that. No, did not. And we never read Andrea's book. The studio did not have the rights to read. They said, you don't read this book. We can't use anything out of this. Just don't even read it. So this is the first time I'm hearing aliens on that property, really. It's like, yeah, me too. It sounds fascinating. Pretty interesting. I mean, we can read the book now. We've already done the movie and everything else. Oh, we met Andrea. She's lovely. She's sweet. Yeah, she's wonderful, wonderful individual. This is funny because when we did the tour at the house, the uh, guy who gave the tour was like, yeah, Hollywood read the books and they were like, this is too scary. We're going to change the story because it's too scary to make what the books were. So it, I like getting your side of it. <laughs> wow. I guess if I owned a haunted house, I would do the same thing. It's a better story. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting take. Yeah. Whatever happened, happened. But as storytellers, you know, Bathsheba was a great, a great in. But, you know, you we talked to Roger Perrin about that witch a lot, you know, and uh he had a full on, a lot of interaction with Bathsheba and you know, a bunch of crazy stuff. I mean, if you look at what happened to them. Well, he went right. Roger went way more into the possession of his wife that she had really changed, like tremendously changed and started wearing period clothing and like, you know, her wow. speech yeah. changed and went back to like a parochial language and things like that. Really? Yeah. She didn't come to set. She was the only she one wouldn't, who wouldn't um, come. She wouldn't want to be there. Wow. So was there ever a, a turning point for her after leaving the house where she kind of reverted back to who she was? Or did this sort of haunting always follow through the rest of her life? I, I don't know the exact answer to that. I mean, I would ask Andrea that, to be honest with mm. you. But from what I recall, and this is a long time ago, is that I think things went back to normal for them at some point. I don't know. You'll have to check with them. I really, I, yeah. I don't know the real answer to that. Hey, guys, this is why they call it the entertainment business. <laughs> We're familiar. <laughs> yeah. You know, you take a few liberties, you know, for yeah, storytelling's sake, right? And if sometimes if you, somebody says, well, that didn't happen. You know, here's, I'm going to deviate for a second. My son Sawyer and I just finished a script based on a true story that happened to him in Italy. He moved in, go to school, and was in a super haunted, poltergeisty, roommate up his ass type environment, right? And so when we're writing it, and it didn't have the big climatic movie ending. 
And I said, Sawyer, and he's never written a script before. And I'm like, okay, but we're going to have to expand on some of this stuff because mm. he started saying, but dad, that didn't happen or it didn't happen <laughs> right. like that. I said, well, on the teeter-totter, what would you rather see in a movie? What's yeah. going to captivate your audience? Because we're saying based on true story, we're not saying verbatim true story. It's not the documentary. Yes, exactly. It's the movie. <laughs> That's what documentaries are for, really. But you know what? It's, to answer your question, the idea of, I mean, we believe aliens actually do exist. We've seen orbs. We've seen orbs with beans in them. So we know that that's how they come. And then we have had many, many encounters with people that have kind of been documented through our own government. I mean, everything that's happening on Capitol Hill right now is some is stuff right. we've known for almost 15 years. It's just been crazy. And when we tell yeah. people that, yeah, UFOs exist, aliens exist, our friend Chris Bledsoe, you can Google him. Jesse Waters last night interviewed him because they believe he's one of the most visited human beings on the planet, but he is really locked down. Yeah. Working with NASA, our government, and they've been doing this for a long time. So to go back to answering your question, although I hadn't read the book and I didn't know aliens were part of that, I don't discount it. I really, I don't discount that some of those encounters because, you know, where there's good, there's bad. And if you talk to Chris, so he would swear that they're not aliens. They're in fact angels. And he just claims they're angels. Well, his message was very positive when he had been abducted. He was dying of a disease and the disease went away like within a week afterwards. Those stories blow my mind. What's very interesting, you guys, is Chris has written a book called UFO of God. And mm. you talk about the demonic world and aliens or angels or whatever. You know, Chris had an experience in his yard where he woke up in his room to these seven foot tall alien beings saying, come outside. And he had already had some interaction with other aliens. It's a long story. It's a whole, you guys, this is a 30 hour interview. If you want to, hear <laughs> we'll set that up another time. <laughs> he goes outside and there's a spaceship in his backyard and the three alien beings. And then there's a woman levitating like an angel floating. And she talks to him and he calls her the lady in white. If you look up Chris Bledsoe, lady in white, and it's very much like the lady of Fatima with the three shepherd ah. children. She gave him the exact same message. And this lady in white has been a reoccurring theme over the years and why the government's very interested in knowing more about who is this lady in white and so on. And so I'm only painting a picture that you have a spaceship, three aliens, and maybe an angel all in the same proximity. It's like, yeah. okay, I don't think we can define and put everything in its own right. category. Yeah. Because, you know, the supernatural is a huge blend, you know, and maybe when God said, love thy neighbor, it was like up here too, you know, it's like we're all neighbors, yeah. right? Interdimensional neighbors and galaxies and all of that. So I think yeah. we have to be, we're going into a new era. We have to be a little more open, a little more accepting because whether I think people want it or not, most people are afraid of change. Most people are afraid of the unseen. But what if the unseen is yeah. a good thing? What if the unseen can help you? You know, we bring knowledge from different places, people, things. It can help us, you know. It's very curious, the idea that like we can't necessarily categorize certain paranormal entities and beings because we don't truly understand what they are, right? But in all of our research right. that Sabrina and I have done, it's interesting how many places that are quote unquote haunted that also have UFO experiences or cryptids or there's almost like these hot spots where there's so many encounters with various entities and creatures and odd energies and vortexes and portals. And so I can understand why 
there would be so many different theories surrounding the conjuring house, especially given how much has happened on that land, like even with the King Philip's War and just the amount of people that died there. There is a lot of weird energy. I'm going to pitch another theory about the conjuring house. <laughs> it's making me think, have you guys ever heard of the Bell Witch? Yes. I don't know why. Remind me. Basically, the premise is a family moved into a house. They started encountering a possession of this entity that they called the Bell Witch. And what was believed to be the Bell Witch was a piece, like an angry piece of their neighbor, this woman who had passed away and all of the anger that had resided within her had chipped off of her soul and festered and created this sort of entity that continued to haunt the land and the cave and the house and whoever lived there. And so it just makes me wonder what happens at the Conjuring House and what happens at certain places like this, like Bathsheba. Is it Bathsheba or is there something lingering that's like a chip of her soul or a chip of the negative energy mm -hmm. that occurred there? Yeah. Have you guys been to the house? No. no. We did some research or something and wanted to go like after, correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, but I believe hearing after the parents left that it became a daycare center for children. Yep. Yeah. And we we're like, are you freaking nuts? But then... In our journey, talking to experts, you know, say just because there's different entities that are attracted to different energies in the house, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't mean, hey, Bathsheba, if the energy's there, she's going to target all the children, right? There may right. be different. You could go through generations of homeowners. Like in Louisiana and New Orleans, there's two things you do not have to declare when you're selling a house, right? If anybody died in that house or if it's haunted, you don't have to say that. So, when you buy a house, I'll go, oh, that's because so many people have, you know, and then if you put that stigma in your head. But I believe like what you're saying about the Bell Witch, that there is a residue of energy. There is like the story of Lorraine. She shared with Chad and I, she's brought in on a, an investigation on a homicide and she was brought to the location where it happened. Now, there's nothing there. And right there when she was there, she knew that there was a police officer who was the, the killer. And she also knew it was somebody local. And she also knew that person was riddled with guilt and if confronted would confess. Wow. But I'm like, yeah, because you leave, you leave something there. And what is that? Is that a gateway? Is that, you know, the, the grudge did it really well, right? Like the movie, the grudge and, you know, when some, something violent occurs. You guys, I think it's like an, like an imprint as well. It's like, you know, you've been yeah. on enough of these yeah. or where Karen and I have, you walk through a place and you find a cold spot and it's always in mm -hmm. the same place. And so, I mean, what is that? Is it a portal? You know, is it a frequency change? Is it, I mean, it could be any one of those things. I mean, the Lorraine thing is fascinating because the cop who had brought her on the investigation brought her back and said, do you see the officer here? And she, she knew who it was. And so they literally, she left, they confronted the guy and he confessed the whole thing. Wow. It wasn't intentional at first right. and so on. You know, it's interesting because... Every time Chad and I go to the LaLaurie house, we can hear a baby crying. 
you could walk into the dining room and it's not in the dining room. It's suddenly in the living room. Interesting. And then, or, you know, it's different parts of the house. So you're going, okay, so is this a time thing or, or old smelling French perfume mm-hmm. you smell and you're going, oh, if you go some days you don't smell anything, but where does that come right. from? What's the residue of that? I mean, it's really so fascinating because it could be a willingness from us. We're there to investigate. So we want to see and hear and smell something. Or like Michael, the guy who owns the home has never had an encounter. No one. Nothing. That's so fascinating. And we were interviewing his housekeeper the first time and she's going stories and stories and stories. He's like, and she had never shared. He goes, why didn't you share these? And she goes, I don't want to lose my job. You know, I want, to, I want to keep you here in the house. And he goes, you're cool. Tell all the stories. And then she goes, well, Chad and Karen, I want to get the electrician here. He rewired Michael's house. He's got so many stories. And then the electrician shows up and he tells us this crazy story, literally about Michael wanted all LED lights in the entire house. And he wants them changed out every year, whether they're good or bad. He doesn't ever want a guest to come to that house and a light not work. And so the guy that changed them all out and he goes, well, what do you want to do with all the lights that still work? He goes, you can have them. So the electrician brings them home the first time, puts them in his house and they have the house and and his wife didn't like him going to the house because it has that reputation, right? At night when they had them all in, he put them all through the house. They all blew out at the same time. Oh, oh my God. And he told us this story and Chad and I were like, oh, bullshit, bullshit. And he goes, hey, honey. He put her on speaker. I'm on with the guys who wrote the country. Can you tell them what happened when I brought the lights home? And she just goes, she told the same story, same exact story. But see, how do you explain things? Like, I really like this way of thinking. And I'm sorry to keep using the LaLaurie house, but it's where we've had all these encounters. But down there in New Orleans, we have photographs that were shown to Carrie and I of these two guys that were painting and it rained so much there that all the outdoor walkways that are covered have like a granulated paint. It's a very special paint that allows your feet to not slip and stuff. And the home is huge. And it was coming up to the third deck landing. I mean, third hallway at the top of the house and he ran out of paint. So he had to kind of navigate down a railway so he didn't walk or step on the, the wet paint. When he got the new paint and he went up there, he stopped just dead cold because suddenly there were sets of footprints on the wet paint, but like child size. And it isn't like they were walking. It was like they were hopping because the feet were equally together. Oh. And they started about 10 feet out and came toward the stairs. I mean, we got there right after this had happened. That guy was freaking out. Yeah. And so we took pictures of the footprints, but it wouldn't go anywhere. But part of that story is a young slave girl who leapt off the roof while being chased by the owner. And she just chose to die rather than being continued to live this way. And a lot of people that take that ghost tour believe that they see a, a young African girl sitting on the roof with her legs dangling off the roof. Chad and I were there working on the script and got a call from a tour guide guy that we had met, giving us a tour earlier and said, hey, are you guys in the house? And say, yeah, he goes, I got a tour group outside that want to meet you. Can you guys come outside? And we're like, yeah, sure, we'll come outside. And so we go out there and this one girl, when we're done talking, she goes, can I get a, a picture with you guys? And she pulls it out and takes a picture. And if she's in between Chad and I, her face looks great. Chad's is swirled and mine's swirled. And she goes, oh, that's weird. And she took a picture across the street. Oh, it's fine. Let's try another one. Same exact thing. And Chad and I look at each other and go, wait, 
is swirling a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, this, is, uh, this was this crazy thing to see. Jeez. We would love to hear. In writing the script, did you have any hauntings? In filming the movie, did you have any hauntings? And then did you meet Annabelle? at all. (laughs) (laughs) Let's start at the beginning, Carrie, because when we were writing the script, we would write during the day and James Wan, the director, he stays up at night and he would read our scripts and do notes on it at night. And he had adopted a rescue dog very early on in the thing. And he called us up one day completely freaking out because he was reading the script in his office and his new little dog had its back to him, but was just staring up at a corner in his office. It wouldn't stop staring in the corner And James was really kind of freaked out about that. I can't remember how many times he did it, but it was enough for James to be like, well, some weird shit. We always say, trust your pets. They they know. Which is one of the very first scenes in the Conjuring movie too, right? Like the dog won't enter the... Oh yeah, it's dating. Yep. She won't go into the house. I was like, oh, this feels so accurate to what we've read and experienced. Yeah, I love it when uh, Roger Perrins says, fucking dumb dog. And the dog, you know... But they were all, dog didn't want to go in the house. You know, it was like, oh, Jesus, man. But Carrie, any other stuff while we were writing? Because i that's what jumps out at me. Just the stuff we told you, talking to Lorraine on the phone, right. the interference that came through. Writing that screenplay, Chad and I had worked for a while on that with Lorraine before, and then we gave it to James. So James, after he had read our draft, he came on board, and then we started retooling it. And that's when James started having that experience. Uh, it was pretty experience-free outside of the Lorraine interruption interference phone calls. Were there any things, because you said that during your phone calls with Lorraine, she said to make note that these are things not to put in the movie. Were there any big things from the phone calls that you did not include? No, she said to make sure we put them in the movie. Oh, oh, oh to actually put them in. To make sure we put them in the movie because the darkness doesn't want it. That's why they're running interference. They did, they want us to be frightened and not do that. Oh. Wow. In the very first conversation where this where the voices came over the lines is we were in fact talking about I do remember this now because Ed and Lorraine have an artifact room in their home and they have a priest come by every single day and bless the room. And I remember her talking about that because she said they had the artifact room because it was like taking guns off the street. She just felt like if we had possession of them, they couldn't hurt other people. And we were having that conversation when this first started coming through. And it was very important that Lorraine let people know in our movie two things, that her husband, Ed, was the most amazing husband you could ever imagine on this planet. And they had such a true love story. And secondly, that evil exists and it can exist in any form, but... Like, you know, Sabrina, that dresser behind you, I don't know where you got it. I don't, you know, whatever. But a spirit, an attachment, it can just attach to anything. You know, it's like relics and old jewelry that you find at these flea markets and stuff like that. So I remember that was the first time. And so we were like, yeah, the artifact room, that's going in. Yeah, we're going to put that for sure. And never met the real Annabelle doll. I think Patrick and Vera did because they actually went up and stayed with, uh, not stayed at Lorraine's place, but went up for a couple of days. They toured the house. Yeah. They toured the house in the artifact room. I will tell you that the paintings in the conjuring are the real paintings painted by Ed Warren, that he was really an exceptional artist. So in artifacts room, when you walk in, they're leaning against the side. Oh, Wow. Yeah, it's very interesting because we couldn't use the actual Raggedy Ann image because Mattel said, we don't want to turn our favorite little doll into a 
horrible little haunted creature, right? Yeah, the Annabelle doll that we used was actually designed by James himself. They hired a professional doll maker and we were in Wilmington when it was all going That's down. Cool. And, and yeah, the doll maker and James would say, hey, you guys, what do you think of this? And and then he was very, very articulate on the image he wanted with Annabelle, which was just great. I thought he did an, an amazing job with that. Does anyone own the doll from the movie now? Like, do you have it in your in one of your homes? <laughs> No, we don't have the actual doll, but I have. Uh, oh, I'm sure Warner Brothers has that. But here we we all have this doll. Oh, we all got. <laughs> yeah. Did you take anything from set? Connor worked on the film in the art department. He's the one who wrote that note. Miss me. You know, with the big question mark. That's. Like oh, the, yeah, the, of course. Little and then as far as when we were filming. Yes, I told you the story with Dylan, my son, and the, the spinning top yeah. and all that. But Carrie has to share because he had a kind of a bigger deal happening at his house when he wasn't there, but his wife and son were while we were shooting. This was kind of intense, actually. My wife uh, woke up in the morning and there was water on the floor, but it was like in a weird snake-like line that was maybe 10 feet long, foot, oh. foot and a half wide. And we had a you know an older dog, but going that dog does not pee like that. And at first, she didn't think, okay, well, this is we got a leak coming up, something. But you had cement floor, so it was, yeah, yeah, just a classic clean it up, rinse out the bucket, turn around, and there's another one. And the dog's not around, and so she started to freak out. And then she said, something's going on here. Can you talk to Lorraine? And so I showed Lorraine the photographs and she goes, well, yeah, honey, that's uh, those are water poultry guys and they are created by pretty intense energy. Do you have any teenagers in the house? I go, I have three teenage boys. And is there, <laughs> is there a lot of uh, energy going on? I go, I have three boys. Yes. You know, they're <laughs> teenagers are in high school, you yeah. know, it's like crazy. And so she had Lori just uh, say some prayers, you know, of, of being the matriarch in the house and dad's way and in prior strength. And they went away. But it was freaky to see the I don't know where I got to find those pictures because it was so unusual. And Lorraine said it doesn't mean it's bad. You, you use the word poltergeist and people go, yeah, I saw the movie. It's horrible. It's terrible. All poltergeist activities, you know, poltergeist are right. just unusual things that are, you know, created by different energies. And so like playful sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So nothing's happened since. Nothing. We had a ghost follow us back from New Orleans one time and had to clear that one out of the house. It was kicking paintings off the walls and a bunch of crazy stuff. And you could just feel it all the time. And yeah. I'd take a picture and there'd be an orb in the corner and, and you could feel what corner it was in. What did you do to get it out of the house? A friend of ours said, hey, and this is where, Chen, I really kind of learned like inner strength of our faith. You don't have to get a Catholic priest. You don't have to do this and this and that, you know, it's a, to a certain extent, right? But your yeah. power is in your belief and in your faith. And this isn't your house. This is my house. And you are an mm -hmm. unwelcome guest. And this, you know, activity is not welcome. We only have peace and harmony. We are getting you out. You're leaving this house right now. And we opened all the doors, all the windows. And we went through and arms open and just go, there you go. And yep. that was done. Didn't have any more activity. It was the same thing. My dog would be just looking, 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 going, oh, my God. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you can see how fear starts to take hold of you. 
and then become yeah. more vulnerable and then it feeds on more fear and it's like hey guys i got something going on over here you know and you become a man yeah. this starts mm-hmm. growing and we always tell people hey start with yourself start with yourself and you'll believe don't don't just put a bible on a dresser and go okay you go well what chapter you know what verse what did you use yeah oh i've never yeah. read the bible so basically you're putting a book you don't know on a dresser and say i hope that works you might as well put dr suits because that's right. not going to work <laughs> You have to know what you're saying and what you believe in. So we had Greg and Dana Newkirk, who are kind of like people equate them to the the more modern day Ed and Lorraine Warren. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They very much talked about how, yeah, a lot of spiritual cleansing has to come from your own beliefs. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't work if you just like use something else that you don't actually believe in because it's not authentic. It's not real. Mm-hmm. That's 100% yeah. true. 100% true. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Uh, we have been very, very blessed, as, as we told you, travel the world and doing sons of investigation. And one guy, we were in India, and we we're going to a place where they do two things, blessings or exorcisms. And it's a small village, dirt road, cows everywhere. Never seen people like Chad and I. We turned a bunch of heads. Who are these people? And there's a priest there, and we we're going to go watch an exorcism. And he said, how is your belief? He goes, what is the strength of your belief? Because what you're going to see is going to test your belief. And Chad and I are like, oh, you're scaring the shit out of us, but we're pretty strong, you know, and uh, <laughs> we're going to walk up into this room. Whatever you do, the individual we're going to pass, do not look at this individual in the eye. I wish that person had never told us that because we go up there, we go up these stairs, it's like 110 degrees out. This guy's chained to a wall facing the sun and he's not even sweating. And and looking, going, whoa, this is crazy. But then people are standing around in white because they're getting blessed. And it's like almost like normal. And we walk by this guy and I can't not look. Chad looks. And I've never looked in the more unholy eyes of my life. I did not know what the word unholy eyes ever meant until we saw this guy. Wow. And then I was like, oh, man, there's some dark shit going on. Right. And he's looking at us, like, I'm getting you next, motherfucker, because I'm after you. And then we watched this exorcism take place, and it was gone. It worked. But our strength, we prayed yeah. and was like, ah, nothing happened to either of us, but I only believe because of our faith, because of our strength, yeah. because of that. I'll add something else because in our, the world that we live in, we seem overtly religious people not lose their faith, but they change their perspective on religion, you know? And I believe in one God, many faces, you know, many from many different countries around the world. But I really believe in a universal God because there's just too many countries or civilizations that contribute everything to a higher place, even when we don't even speak the same languages, but we're talking about the same thing. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I it's agree. kind of inherent in us. So it is like what you said, a spirituality, a protection. You have the authority of yourself to override the darkness, you know, and you really have to believe it because like what Carrie said, we were, we were both terrified of that one guy. I'll never forget, never forget that. But even going upstairs where we were able to watch an exorcism, there is a young girl, maybe nine years old, completely just 
not Linda Blair possessed, but like she was scaling and she's laughing and she would do a backflip and land with her head smacking the floor. And she did it over and over and over. And her parents were like sitting around like, like this is nothing. They believe that when you're possessed by a spirit, the spirit doesn't allow the body to be injured. And this girl, no blood. Because I need it. Yeah, I need the body. Nothing, nothing, nothing. And it wasn't until later when Carrie and I were, I don't know, grabbed a beer or something. We needed something after that. And the guy with the with the unholy eyes walking by and he had both his arms around, I'm assuming his parents, and this the brightest smile. We, Karen and I both knows he had amazing yeah. teeth and he seemed so joyful. And he'd go, you know, mental illness is not cured like that. So then you have to believe that the the Bapa or what what are they called? Carry the um Bopa, I think. Bopa. They do the healings. They have the authority to take these things away. So that's what I'm talking about. It's like it's unwritten, but it's universal, you know? And yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because this one of the guys said to Carrie and I, we were witnessing another one, and he goes, Do one of you want to be um possessed by a low-level demon and just experience what this is like? And I'll make sure I can I'll take him out as soon as you what? want him out. Yeah. And I go, well, you could do it to my brother. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Poor Carrie. And did you? No, I said you nope. could do it to my brother. <laughs> so it, it didn't go anywhere. That guy said, I have the, the blood of a gin in this vial. I will put it on your third eye and you can look into the supernatural world of the gin and see what they see and see them again. No, thank you. I, I, my imagination does a pretty good job of that. Right. I don't want to invite anything. Exactly. Anything. Totally. Yeah. Well, were you nervous when you were witnessing all of these possessions? Oh, yeah. Like the energy has to go somewhere. Were you nervous that it was going to potentially attach itself to you or someone else in the room? No, not really. Just what we've been talking about. It's like being at in these haunted places. You see some really weird, yeah. cool stuff. Yes, we've been utterly terrified. Yes, we've been like uh, is this stronger than me? You know, that creeps in and stuff like that. But right. to be surrounded up there where this was a big room with a lot of people with nothing but hope on their faces surrounding those that just were out of control. I thought we were in a crazy, a crazy place. But there's one place Karen and I went to in India where we both got the hell out of there so fast. And it was a, they call it the monkey temple. Where is this? It was in India and in Rajasthan. And We were very close to closing and we were with our Indian producer, this guy Rakesh, who would not step foot on these grounds. He, I'll wait for you at the gate. I'm not going there. Go wander. And we were looking around we were doing a movie on a gin possession for New Line at that moment. And so we go up into the temple and like what you had said, the kind of Karen, I got this uneasy feeling and we remember this, Carrie, we just kept going higher and higher in these stairs and the sun setting. And I'm like, it was more than just a temple. It was like a village that had been oh, that's right. abandoned overnight years before because of gins. Yeah. Because of that. So, right. you know, it's like you guys going to the parent house. All right. No, we heard the story. We're going to go there. But whew, yeah. Yeah. Wow. We got upstairs. Yeah. We were inside. I thought it was like a temple or something. And we both kind of look at each other and we go, I'm, let's go to the end and then let's get out of here. I'm not, ugh, I have chills right now thinking about this. And so we get to the very end and there at the end is a hole in the ground and around the hole are perfectly placed bird feathers 
in a really bizarre, who knows what it meant. And then the head of the bird was like at the top of this design of the feathers and it was still bleeding. And Karen and I are like, oh my God. Oh. Wham. And we just ran out of there. And that was probably wow. one of the most frightened I'd ever been of something supernatural that close, something that could catch a freaking bird and destroy a bird and then place it the way it did. No, we got out of there. And- yeah, there was nobody around. But remember, Rakashi goes, maybe you'll listen to me next time. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I have a question because as two people who write some of the most terrifying things and have witnessed some very terrifying things, what movie will you never watch again because it's too scary, if any? There isn't a movie that's too scary that I won't watch because I love it. I love yeah. seeing how these movies are made. I like seeing how the it, it's sad because sometimes I'm the writer watching a movie seeing how this scare works, how this unfolds. But a lot of times yeah. it's like, I forget that I'm the writer and I'm like starting to sweat. Oh, and I'm jump scary and I'm going, oh, this is good. This is great. Turning the volume down. Yes. <laughs> My kids laugh at me because I freaking jump at so much stuff. <laughs> the stuff that I won't watch is like gory scare, gore scare. I just, mm. I don't like mm-hmm. watch people get hurt. I told you we did House of Wax. I was the only- I was just going to say, say House of Wax is a- uh... The uh, ankles. We decided after that movie, that was it. We were not going to do that again. They haven't done it since. Yeah. That was the first scary movie I ever watched. Was it really? Oh, my, God. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Want to hear something really bizarre? Is, okay, the opening of House of Wax really happened to Carrie and I, and that's how I think we got the job, where we were on a trip with our brother to go up to Canada and we were driving very late at night. Everyone was tired. My brother goes, let's just go up this fire trail and we'll sleep for a couple hours up on this trail and then get in the car and keep driving. And we get out and he had a little Volkswagen rabbit with really shitty headlights. And so we had the headlights on. We're trying to put our bags down and we go, oh my God, this smell, like we like death, like just this horrible, horrible uh. smell just washed over us. And we're like looking around. Of course, we didn't have a flashlight or anything. And Something's dead. And then it would go away. And we're like, it happened one more time. And we wanted to leave. My brother's like, no, I got my bag out. Come on, just go to sleep for a couple hours. So in the middle of the night, we wake up to a truck driving up that road. And it literally put its headlights on us. And we could tell it was one person because the moon was behind him. There was a rifle in a rifle rack inside. He was wearing a baseball cap and he wouldn't leave and just kept his lights on us. And we're like, we got up. What do you want? What do you want? And we just started walking toward him and he just kept his lights and then he put it in reverse and he backed down the trail. And so we we're like, oh, great. So now is he like parked a hundred yards away and now he's coming up through the woods with that rifle. I mean, we're writers. That's our imagination. And terrifying. Yeah, of course. Not sleeping. One, one eye open, one eye shut. And then morning came and I was the first one that got up. It was dawn and I stood up. And I just started laughing hysterically because just beyond the headlights was a roadkill pit just full of dead animals like deers and skunks and raccoons covered in lime. So now we're thinking like this guy was probably there to deliver a roadkill into the pit. But he's like, who are the dudes sleeping by the roadkill pit? He was probably more afraid of us than. Yeah. (laughs) 
No, but so we pitched that when we went in on, on House of Wax. We had always wanted to do a horror movie. And Susan Downey, who was Susan Levine then, we told her we've always wanted to do a movie with this opening in the movie. And she goes, you guys, that's so great. We got to do it. So, I mean, that's how House of Wax opens. You know, she slides <laughs> in, Alicia slides into that road yeah. trip and stuff. So truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. Wow. Chad, is there a scary movie that really does it for you? That's too scary. Yeah, I don't ever want to watch The Strangers again, that home invasion movie, you know, where Brad Cooper. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yep. It's just, and ironically, Karen, I just finished producing a home invasion movie with a big, huge twist. But that movie was so, so disturbing to me just because it felt like it could happen to anyone, absolutely anyone. That's the last line of the movie. It's why, right. why us? Because you were home. Because you were home. It could happen to anyone. <sighs> Yeah. So, yeah, I would say it was just done so well that it just it got under my skin. And I don't know why I would ever have to watch that movie again. Yeah. It's almost like chainsaw movies, the chainsaw movies. Yeah. Like, ah, just the thought of getting cut up, you know, is enough to make me like eat. Now, don't want to do that. But. Yeah, I feel the same way about a lot of the scenes you included in House of Wax. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> some people fear being like in a plane crash or lit on fire. I fear like my Achilles heel being snipped, me being ripped <laughs> apart at a gas station. Like all of these scenes are just so disturbing. So <laughs> Yeah, you know what it was from the guys who wrote Disney movies. Anything else that happened on the Conjuring set? Or also, okay, so at a lot of haunted places, sometimes if someone steals something from it, they take something from the haunted place, they'll experience a haunting and then have to send the rock they took from the driveway or, or whatever it is back. Do you know if anyone took anything from the set that might have followed them? Well, not anyone that's still alive, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I, you know what? It's because uh, the set, we didn't shoot at the house. All of yeah. the pieces were, you know, either made or brought in there. I think which was a good thing because if you did shoot at the house and you were around that property, that's just inviting conflict. Definitely. That's just inviting stuff like that. Well, and Lorraine had, she had certain things removed. I can't recall exactly. I think one was a piece of furniture. One was, I think, a doll of some sort, like an antique looking doll. And one or two other things, and James was very, very supportive of acknowledging that she had this gift and, you know, and not to introduce anything. Yeah. I don't know if anything in particular happened. You'd have to talk to Vera or Pat, you know, Wilson, Vera, uh, farming or Pat Wilson, if, if anything happened. I didn't hear any stories about their families or anything. One of the most horrifying things in that movie for me is the hide and clap game. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that inspired by like, is that a true thing that ex they experienced or where did that come from? Is that just from inside your brains? <laughs> that was uh, James one. That was James. Yeah. He wanted that in there. He goes, the great thing that make things scary is things that seem harmless when you start and build into mm -hmm. it. He goes, I want to really if we could if we put something in here like that. And then he said to Chad and I, he goes, hey, I think I have something that would work and we have to parcel it out and build on it. 
He goes, it's play hide and seek, but you know, you hide and seek through a house. He goes, you guys do that? Yeah. But did you ever play the clapping game? We're like, no. And it's like, you, you have to do that, right? If somebody's around. Yeah. And then, so that way we went, okay, that's really good. Cause you start with the girls and then you find the basement because of it. And then Rory starts doing that in the basement to the mom. And then the hands and the cut and the yeah, the hands coming out. Yeah, it was uh, it was such a great idea to build on and make that into. Well, we responded to the fact that it's like that feeling of being chased, you know, when you just you know who's chasing you and you know they're right behind you. But oh, I just I, that feeling of I'm about to get caught. It's like Karen and I try to design these things like like you're on a roller coaster. You know, we try to write our films like yeah, you buy your ticket, you sit in the seat. You know you're going to be safe, you know, but you're facing the unexpected. And then you go, you know, that first giant hill climb, first giant scare. And then we got to let you breathe for a couple of minutes, you know, and then we can do it again and do it again. So it's really fun. And the clap game really fed into that sense of a roller coaster really, really well. And it was fun. It was really It was clever. A lot of people have commented on that, Sabrina, as well. Just like, you know, where did that come from? It's like, that's James Wong, you know, I don't know, in his sick little mind somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Having fun, figuring it out. Would you ever go to the Conjuring house and play that game? (laughs) Sure. Yeah, let's see what happens. I don't know if you need, need to entice anything, you know? <laughs> like, I'd rather write it than experience it. John, yes. Carrie, no. <laughs> I don't want to write about my own experience if it's horrible. Like, <laughs> I'll write about other people's. <laughs> yeah. We'll have to invite you to our future homes to tell us if, if they're haunted yeah, they are, or not, yeah, since you sure. guys clearly are, are super in tune. <laughs> are there any moments from the script... Uh, the original script, the, maybe the shooting script that didn't make it into the final cut of the movie that you're bummed about? It's a great question, but no, the no, the script was so ready to shoot by the time we were shooting the and I'm not even bummed about these scenes. We were running behind and we needed to uh, cut some day a day out of the schedule because we were over. And this is like when you're on such a tight budget. So what you try to do is in film business, is you just try to cut anything that requires movement, you know, of the team to move to a new location or whatever. And so we had one day where Ed and Lorraine went to where you guys went to the historian, you know, and, and they got all that information. And then they went to an artifact house to investigate this other stuff. And all that turned into their assistant, Shannon, ding dong, open up the door. And he goes, here's all those things you asked for. And now they're all in the book. And then you cut to Vera uh, Lorraine going and Ed over here, this happened and this happened. Remember when she's on her dining table and explaining all that. So, I mean, that's the only thing we shaved out to be honest with you. And it works better the way it is now. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you could ask us about other films and I keep you busy all day. Yeah, for sure. On things that you wrote that you're like, (laughs) Oh God, I can't believe you got rid of that. But no. Well, we'll have to do a part two of this. Oh, yeah. Happy to do that. There's there. It happens all the time. You know what? It was when Jen and I wrote that script and they said, we're going to give it to one director first. If that director says, yes, you have a green light on the movie. We're going to go make that starting as soon as that person says yes. If not, we're going to take our time to find directors. And it was James Wan. And they sent James a script. And then. They said, James wants to meet you two. 
can you guys meet James for lunch? And we said, absolutely. So we met for lunch up on Sunset and we just hit it off right away. And lunch turned into dinner at the same restaurant. We just kept talking and talking. (laughs) And he had just great ideas, really great ideas and how to trim some fat and how to expand the scares. I mean, James is a, is a master of scares. He's really, really good director, as we all know. It got so tight so fast that once we went to location, we ended up building the interior of the house inside of a soundstage. So James had wider hallways. He navigated it really well, designed it. So it was shooter friendly. We didn't have to go into the actual house and, you know, do anything like that. So that helped expedite everything in a really nice way. And there was, I'll never forget that Lily Taylor said to the five girls, she goes, I have done so many movies, you girls, remember this. This is the most conflict-free movie I've ever been on. I've never heard so much laughter and everybody get along. And it was funny because Chad and I, we had rented a place on the beach in, in Wrightsville and every Sunday, we would have oyster feasts at our place. Whoever mm-hmm. wanted to come by, we'd buy bushels of oysters. And everybody, everybody would come by. It was really fun. And Peter Safran had a friend of his who was producing another movie. He said, can I bring my buddy? And we're like, absolutely. And this guy shows up and he goes, wait a minute. You work together all week. And now you're spending <laughs> Sunday together. He goes, I'm three days into my shoot and I hate everybody. It's like. <laughs> oh, that's so nice. That's incredible. So important on a movie set, too, where like energy can be so heightened with the fear and the anxiety that's built up in all of those scenes. So that's awesome to hear that mm-hmm. that everyone actually enjoyed it. It was really one of the best, I, our best film experiences we've ever had. I mean, honestly, wow. it was just so much fun and laughter and just everything just went great. There was no huge conflicts or no dramas. That's amazing. It was really nice. For such a scary movie and based off such a scary story, that is a beautiful way for it to like kind of tie together and wrap up. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. Because at the core of it was like pretty gnarly and you get halfway through a movie shoot, you know, and that's kind of like the midpoint of a movie, right? Where you need something to happen to keep everybody yeah. going a little longer. And James had everybody at lunch for at the house, the exterior house. And at lunchtime, he goes, I need everybody in the living room of this house. We all crowd. I mean, this is like 80 people, right? And we all crowd in. And there's this big screen TV. And James and his editor, Kurt, had clipped together based on what we had shot so far, a trailer. And everybody, and this is every key, every actor, every actor, everybody is watching this. And it was like three minutes. And it was so good that it just revved everybody up. It's oh, like, whoa, we got cool. a great movie here and it's only yeah. half of it. So it was really smart because it carried, it just carried everybody was so happy they were part of what was coming together in such a beautiful way. Yeah, you felt something special was happening. It's it, very interesting because, yeah, for such a scary film, all the parts just came together seamlessly. Like even we were supposed to release it January 25th as a winter film. And they decided to do a test screening. A test screening, I don't know if you guys have ever been to it. It's 400 people, 200 women, 200 men, half above 25, half below 25. And that's called four quadrant movies. So if women your age just really love the film and give it super high scores, the studio just focuses on advertising in your age group and to your target audience. Yeah. So they did a test screening 
And they said, if you get a 43%, we're good to go. And we got an 86% and across all four quadrants. And there's a thing called Def Rec where the most important thing in our industry is, would you recommend this film to somebody else? It's the cheapest advertising, but the most powerful. And this is where it got an 86%. Right. Word That's, of mouth. Yeah. And so word of mouth. And then they wanted to be sure that, and there's a couple little things like, oh, where did the matches come from? Oh, where did the crayon come from? Like stuff like that. So we did like one day of reshoots, put those little inserts, nothing, nothing, like tiny, tiny pickups. And then yeah. they wanted to test screen it again. And James was like, oh no, oh my God. And so we're all having beers before the screen. He's having milk. His stomach is just turning like crazy because lightning never strikes twice. <laughs> and this time when they did it, it went up to like a 93%, which was just crazy. And that's why the studio decided to make it a summer release. They put us up against all those giant $100 million films, you know, the Marvel movies. I forget who we were up against, but some really big movies. And we beat them all in the weekend. And it just goes to tell you that the right story will attract the right audience. It doesn't have to necessarily be mm-hmm. big blockbuster yeah. kind of thing. And so we took over the July openings now, and now horror movies are not afraid to open up in summer. Normally, they were always around Halloween, winter movies, you know, wintertime. So. Well, it's well-deserved. And I will say thank you for creating this movie because it oh, truly is, it's an iconic horror movie. It really, really is arguably one of the best horror movies, I'll say. And as someone who was terrified of horror movies growing up and dealt with a lot of paranormal stuff, when The Conjuring came out, I was like, oh, this is the first time I'm like, I'm in this and I love this stuff and I'm embracing it. And oh, it's super cool. It just has been very influential in my life and in our podcast career. So mm-hmm. yeah, thank you. One quick question though. How did you two ever get into this? <laughs> Where did this come from? I mean, we're motivated because it's a business, but you guys do this and go to the house and, you know, you're looking for it. Yeah. You know, where'd that start? Well, it found us first. In childhood. <laughs> Did it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We both yeah. grew up in haunted houses. Sabrina's wow. house in New Jersey, where she grew up, was quite haunted. My house in Vermont, extremely haunted. Still haunted to this day. My parents are always calling with, like, a new ghost story that they've encountered in our right. home. So. Sabrina and I met in college. We went to Loyola Marymount University in LA and it was the first talking point we had together. Like, oh, I grew up in a haunted house. Me too. And it kind of just spurred us. A friendship. Yeah, a friendship. And then, you know, LMU, like classic college campus. There's always hauntings. We would go at night. We'd like (laughs) before a party, we would like go and investigate the theater by ourselves, like sort of do stuff like that. And then as things progressed and I moved back to Boston to the East Coast, we just decided to do a podcast about it. the things we love most, which is ghost stories. <laughs> and it's fascinating because if you believe that ghosts are an extension of like us after life, I don't know. I'm very fascinated with psychology and like how humans work and why yep. do some people remain in spirit form. And I think you can dig into the psyche of a person, the ghost and the person that's living, like what are they dealing with that they are now experiencing these spirits. Mm -hmm. So I just think there's so many stories and different kind of layers to the paranormal. That's it's crazy. Do you guys ever use spirit boxes or anything? Talk boxes to communicate? The first time we did was at the conjuring house. Really? Oh, really? Yeah. Did you get anything? 
We did. We got a lot. Yes. Yeah, there was a lot. Okay, we'll tell you some of the things that happened. So apparently the new owners or, or maybe the previous owner of the Conjuring House, they investigated the land and were basically directed that there could be a few bodies buried on the property. And so they brought in some sort of radar system and it appeared that there is some impression in the ground where there are five markings that would be as large as like a grave would be. So it almost appears like there's five coffins. But throughout some of the like paranormal investigations they've done, they were told by spirits that there were seven. And when we were doing the spirit box, it was the Estes method that was being used. So uh, Greg and Dana Newkirk, paranormal investigators, they were there with us. And Dana was hooked to the spirit box with her headphones on. And we were asking questions. She couldn't, yeah, she couldn't hear or see us. She was just repeating whatever was being told to her through her headphones. And the spirits essentially told us that there were two more bodies out in the field. One of the spirits said that the other one was worm food and was essentially just like discussing the bodies out there. And then another spirit, spirit, so to speak, came forward and kept telling us to look out the window. And it was very like weird alien UFO-esque where it was like, look out the window, there's a portal, look out the window. Like, we'll find you. Look out the window. And none of us wanted to look out the window. (laughs) One of the spirits was like, it happens at midnight. And I got so nervous about that. I was like, what happens at midnight? And then (laughs) we were down in the basement of the house around midnight. And we were talking like scary stories. And Greg and Dana, my gosh, they have a collection of haunted objects as well. And they were telling us a story about one of them. And I was like, kept checking my phone. And it was like 1158. And I was like... Can we just pause all scary conversations until 1201? <laughs> oh, my God. You guys are brave. Yeah. One of the worst things that happened was in the very beginning when we, the Estes method was happening. We what were we even asking, Sabrina? We asked, like, what do you want? And they said, oh, they said it used to be good there and now it's not anymore. And so I said, is there anything that can make your experience like your life better? And, and they said, said Sabrina. It was like you, Sabrina. It was like you. And so we're like, oh my God, Sabrina, they're coming for you at midnight. <laughs> Whoa, oh my geez. God. Oh my God. I'm still here and feel safe. So terrifying. That's a great opening to a movie, by the way. That <laughs> is. But if you yeah. ever want to write Conjuring Part Two from the Connecticut House yeah. or Rhode Island yeah. House, then uh, wow, that's we're there. Wild, we stayed at an Airbnb about 20 minutes away that was a farm that had chickens because we were like, we need some reprieve after staying at that house. So we immediately went back at like 4 a.m. to this house and then the next morning cuddled all of their rescue the chickens. chickens for comfort. <laughs> <laughs> Just needed to feel some love, right? It was like, oh my God. We did, we did. We're like, exactly. oh, remind us that we're on this earth and not being possessed. Well, it's funny how it does make you feel that way. We were, Karen and I just finished, we just wrapped a film in Minnesota, of all places, in Duluth. And there was an abandoned mental hospital there. It had been so disembodied over the years by weird culty activity that happened in there with like pentagrams painted on floors. And, and it was just really disturbing to even walk through there. But that's when Carrie and I walked through and we go, whoa, this something really horrible. We're walking towards something really horrible that probably not right now, but 
it's just the energy was just so thick. You almost had to crawl through it. Yeah. You got into this big, huge room and you wouldn't even have noticed it because it was painted so large, but we found ourselves standing on a pentagram that had been drawn on this floor, but it was so large and there were chairs. Remember this chair that was just particularly placed in odd places around this room. And you just felt like, you know, what was going on in here? It was hard to breathe in that room. It was. Yeah, we got out. Jeez. We had a paranormal investigator with us that brought the box yeah. and had it. And, oh, my God, the voices just overlapping, overlapping, overlapping. And he kept hearing out, 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 out. Oh, God. And I'm like, I'm, I'm listening to that one. I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, definitely. You know, you guys have been more places than we've been. We're always looking for new stories, you know, or. Well, people... we have lots, personal and from the podcast. <laughs> we met beyond our match. We thought we had a lot of stories. It's that you guys <laughs> six years of going down the dive, man. That's pretty impressive. You know, I was even thinking like when we get closer to LaLaurie, it'd be really fun to get you guys down to that house, you know, and do <gasps> podcast from the house. That would be so cool. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, Michael's very particular. It's Chad and I were up on the first level balcony having our little afternoon delights. And the tour groups go by every 15 minutes. And a guy goes, hey, I'll give you $1,000 cash if you open that door and let my wife and I walk through that house. Like, sorry, no. it's not our house, man. But yeah. we go, Michael, you could, you could sell tickets to your house. But he doesn't need the money. 100%. He's a very wealthy individual. Right, right, yeah. And he goes, it's very private. And also, it doesn't seem like that would be something advantageous for the energy going on in that house. Yeah, you need no. to be careful about like what sort of energy and, and sometimes yeah. like desperation people bring in yeah. with them that could exacerbate the activity, which sounds like there's plenty already. But it's, it's like Fort Knox. It's so tight on security just because oh people want yeah. to get in there and they leave like little odd sacrifices at the front door. They put it through their hands through the gate and they'll do like like a gree bag, you know, that has different spices and herbs and maybe some cigarettes mm. laying across the top of it and some little idols. I mean, that was when we were there and Carol just goes and she doesn't touch it. She just sweeps it up into, you know, a broom with a handle yeah. and a thing so she never touches it and just throws them out. I have so many things that I want to talk to you guys about. Oh. We went to New Orleans once and we uh, caught a picture of a ghost penis at uh, <laughs> Lafitte's blacksmith shop. Oh, my God. Inside the bar? Yes. In the fireplace. Oh. In the fireplace. In the fireplace you did? Oh, my yeah. God. Oh, I want to see that. That's crazy. Well, John Lafitte's face, people see his face in the fireplace, but we, yeah. we caught something else. That's what we were told. Take a picture of the fireplace and see what it is. This is so fun. Thank you guys so much for for taking the time to talk to us. And clearly we could spend hours and hours and hours talking. So we'll have to do this again. Absolute pleasure. I love meeting you both. And it's been fun to talk shop with two other people who dig hauntings as much as we do in that supernatural world. (laughs) Can't wait to do it again. But um, thank you for the opportunity. Honestly, it's just it's been fun. Well, thank you so much. You bet, you guys, and happy hauntings and happy podcast. <laughs> happy hauntings, yes. Happy hauntings only, right? That's what we want. Yeah, not not scary hauntings, happy hauntings. Yeah, exactly. Fun. They're great. All right, you guys, take care. See ya. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Sounds great, you guys. Take care. Bye. Very smooth.